At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. I'm Joe Sanok. I'm the author of Thursday is the New Friday, a book coming out with HarperCollins October 5th, 2021. And uh, yeah, it's all about how the four-day work week boosts productivity and creativity. So this is great for independent uh, people, but what about the companies? Are they up, I'm rolling up at this or what? Yeah, you know, Nissan Infinity Canada did a bulk book buy and brought me in to talk about mental health and work schedule. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing a lot of small and medium-sized businesses that mm -hmm. are doing experiments around the four-day work week. And, you know, I mean, there's tons of case studies. One that I'm most excited about is Kalamazoo Valley Community College, a small community college in Southwest Michigan. There was this HVAC instructor and every Friday in the summer, he went up and took pictures from the roof to show how few people were there. And then he ran the numbers on if they turned the AC off on a Thursday night instead of a Friday. And four years ago, they switched to a four-day work week in the summer, and they've saved millions just in air conditioning costs. Um, and the staff are happier. Students are happier because, you know, everything's open a little bit later. Um, the health outcomes are better. Retention of staff. I mean, you think about just hiring and getting a new staff onboarded, people are staying longer. So if a Kalamazoo community college can switch to a four-day week and experiment and just say, like, does this work for us? Um, I think it's important for businesses to just question, why have we done it this way? Yeah, it, the old agrarian society, basically. But the, um, yeah, my wife, ex-wife works at um, Elgin Community College, mm. the biggest one in, oh, yeah. in Illinois. Same thing, she does work on Fridays and, on, uh, during the summer. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it, I think what's happening is, you know, in 1926, Henry Ford started the 40-hour work week. Yeah. Uh, it was to sell cars to his own people. He mm -hmm. said if they have the weekend, uh, then they're going to buy a car. If they are just going to work, they're not going to buy a car. So he wanted to sell cars to his own people. Yeah. And it took off from there. Before that, people were working 10 to 14 hours a day, six days a week or more. And so that was needed at the time. It was a step forward in the evolution of business. Mm. No, no one should work 14 hours a day, six days a week. Right. Um, so 40 hours was was a great step for the time. Mm -hmm. But do we still think about people like they're machines, that they're just replaceable? That do we? There's nothing else that we believe that the industrialists gave us. So mm -hmm. things can be appropriate for the time. We can also say we've outgrown that. We don't think like that. We value people differently. We're creative. We have new tools that they didn't have in 1926. So I think COVID really just blew up all of our schedules where we said, holy cow, the thing I thought I needed 40 hours for, maybe I don't need 40 hours for, or I'd rather work in this way that's different than how I've done it. Um, so pe people are questioning it, and we're in that kind of messy leaving of the industrialist era into yeah. something new. Wow, that's great. So I want to know more about you, Joe. Where'd you yeah. come up with this idea? How to come, where to come from? What are you doing? You know, um, it's interesting how sometimes in life you live something and then you kind of stray from it and then you return to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember my freshman orientation at college and uh, the advisor said, make your schedule. I'm like, wait, what? Like I'm a high schooler. It's like, you know, go to school 8 a.m. to 3.30, then you go to sports and your life's crazy. And, and she's like, you know, to be full time, you need to do 16 hours a week. And I'm like, wait, what? So I don't have to go to school on Friday? She's like, make what, do whatever you want. So I didn't have Friday classes. And then the next semester I had no Friday classes. Throughout all of my undergrad, I had one Friday class only because it wasn't offered on another day. So then my first job out of grad school, uh, I'm trained as a psychologist and a therapist. Um, I'm working at this residential facility. And I, I'm thinking, you know, I like not working on Fridays. So in the negotiations, I said, I want to have a four day week. And so I thought it was normal to negotiate for a four day week from the beginning. <laughs> only to find out later that 
Like that's not what most people do. Um, so then I got a full-time job at a community college eventually, had a side counseling practice and podcast and things took off mm -hmm. and got busy and you know, kind of that proving yourself in your career side. But then when I left that full-time job to do my podcasting and consulting uh, full-time, uh, I said, I'm now again in charge of my schedule. And so I just did an experiment one summer and said, I'm gonna take Fridays off, let's see how it goes. And every month I made more money than I had the month before. Um, and so that became permanent. And then I just have kept experimenting with my schedule to play with it and to dance around and see like, what can work, what can not work? And let's just look at the numbers and get some data. Wow. So you're, um, you're trained in psychology. It is. So that's good. That's a good uh, evidence that, hey, this is, this is healthy for you. Yeah. So it's not just about saving time and money. It's actually good for you. Yeah. I mean, I love neuroscience. I love research. I don't want to just say, here's Joe Sanok's idea. Like, right. sure, of course, I think my ideas are great. But I want there to actually be evidence. I want there to be case studies and mm -hmm. examples of like the nuances of how people enact these principles. And, um, you know, even just something as little as a one minute break. Um, University of Illinois did this really fascinating study on vigilance decrement. So vigilance, how well you pay attention to something, decrement going down over time. Mm -hmm. And so the idea up till that point had been, you know, we have energy for the day. It's like a cup of water, you pour it out, at the end of the day you gotta sleep, eat, bounce back. You're, you're done with your energy, there's no way to optimize it fully. So they did this study where they wanted to look at a very boring task and see if there was vigilance decrement, where people pay attention worse at the end than at the beginning. So they give all, all these students come in like one at a time, they look at a computer, they give them a random four digit number, like four, three, two, one. Um, and so every time four, three, two, one comes up on the screen, you've got to push a little button. Um, and when other numbers come up, you don't push the button. So for an hour, they sit there seeing random, boring four digit numbers, your number comes up, hit the button. At the end, what happened? There was vigilance decrement. The amount they paid attention at the end of the study was worse than at the beginning. Then they had a second group that came in, as you do in research studies, and at the one-third mark, they gave them a one-minute break. They said something like, you know, we put you on the wrong computer, hang out in the lobby, they didn't have any screens or a phone, it's like, just, just chill out for a minute, like, we'll just get this set up for you. Then they brought them back in, same exercise. At the two-thirds mark, they did the same thing. You know, sorry, like, you're on the wrong computer, one-minute break, just hang out, come back in, they finish up the study. There was zero vigilance decrement, meaning that they were exactly the same at the end as they were at the beginning. So, so why is that? So if you think about your brain, you know, if you've walked through a jungle for 40 years, you know, the ancestors said that there were tigers there and you've never seen a tiger. You're not gonna be paying attention for a tiger after 40 years of never mm -hmm. seeing a tiger. Mm -hmm. But if you're on a new path, or if you just saw a tiger, uh, you're mm -hmm. gonna pay attention. Our brains are still very old. And, and so uh, we think that we're all advanced and all that, but you know, that one minute break, break restarts the brain to say, wait, I gotta pay attention here. And so then when we look at this in business, we don't realize that there's all these little hacks that we can do to be more efficient with our time that when we slow down, when we come from a place of grounding and centeredness and not stressed out and maxed out, we're more creative, we're more productive. Sure. And so if we can enact some of those skills, it just helps us get more done in a shorter period of time. Wow. From a neuroscience standpoint, I'm curious about this because, yeah, I take I take the weekends off now. Even as an entrepreneur, I'm not Mark Cuban. I don't work seven days a week. It's just yeah. not healthy, I don't think. Um, but what's the difference between two days and three days, neurologically speaking or physiologically speaking? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the, the four-day work week for me is a step in the right direction. I'm not saying that this is the end all, this is where it needs to be. I think it's the start of the conversation as we leave the industrialist era. Mm. I think for most people, how they live their weekends is Friday night, they're really happy about it. Maybe they have friends over, hang out with the kids, have pizza night, whatever they do. So they're, they're, they have weekend on Friday night. Mm. 
Saturday they have soccer games, they're running around, maybe get some shopping done. Uh, they're catching up, all the adulthood stuff that no one prepares us for, there's just so much work. Yeah. And then by Sunday it's like, man, I gotta go to work tomorrow, yeah. and they're already back in the work week. So if we just give one day and say, you know, what if Friday when there's not as many people at the grocery store or whatever you need to get done, you just got all that stuff done. And then you intentionally look at Saturday and Sunday and say, how do I genuinely slow down? What do I do for my body? What do I do for my family, for the relationships, for my personal goals? So that I fully unplugged and I have some hard boundaries around what I'm going to do this weekend and I have some soft boundaries of things that maybe you're a little flexible on. Right then your brain is prepared on Monday to just go kill it. And you're just gonna mm -hmm. tear apart that week because you have all these productivity tools and your body's ready to jump in. Oh, interesting. But the one minute break is good. I mean, I, I you know, study a little bit of things. I know a lot of Europeans take naps mm -hmm. and I've incorporated naps into my week. My Fridays are over like a two, not the whole day, but it's yeah. pretty good. Um, that's interesting. So the, the, the one minute thing is really fascinating me. So a one minute break had 100% you know, yeah, it was retention the same. on that. Um, are, are bosses, managers giving people enough breaks throughout the day? Would that be a big difference? You know, I mean, I think that it, it's more how they take the break, mm -hmm. how they design their environment um, to optimize the time that you're actually working. So most people, you know, they hear things like sprint or batch, where you're gonna do all this work. I mean, what you're doing you know, right now, you're getting a lot done in one period of time. Sure. Uh, but they don't, they may try that and it won't work for them because they don't understand their sprint type, that the brain mm -hmm. actually has different ways based on your personality, your DNA, that you respond to sprints. And so in the book I talk about discovering your sprint type uh, because someone may try the typical batching sprint and they're like, that doesn't work for me. I guess I, I'm not a sprinter. But then the reality is, is you just don't know your sprint type. And so there's, if you think of an X, Y axis, so there, there's one level where you're looking at like when should you sprint? And mm -hmm. so should it be something weekly that just repeats itself? Uh, or should it be more of a retreat type where you go mm -hmm. away once a quarter for four or five days and just do right. it all at once? Mm -hmm. So most people will try one or the other and then it may not work for them. And they say, I, I'm not a sprinter, I can't get things done. But yeah. the reality is they need to figure out like when they're gonna do it. Yeah. And then the other side is how they're gonna do it. And so mm -hmm. are you a task switcher? Meaning that you need that variety. So for 20 minutes you're gonna do some video recordings. And for 20 minutes you're gonna do emails and yeah. you're gonna get a lot done. Mm -hmm. Or are you someone that needs to be all in on one thing? I'm gonna do 10 interviews with people in a row. You know, so like John mm -hmm. Lee Dumas, for example, great yeah. podcaster. Mm -hmm. um, he, on very specific times each month, does all of his interviews. So he yep. batches one thing mm -hmm. for that. Someone else may need to have that variety. Someone else mm -hmm. may need to have a four days away at a retreat center that they go do that. And so when you discover your sprint type, then when you're actually killing it and getting away from this just crazy hustle culture, you're more efficient in the time that you actually are getting things done. So you gotta probably experiment on yourself to find out what, what your type is. Yeah. Unless you have a you know, uh, tool or something in your book. Oh yeah, yeah, I have a whole assessment in there. <laughs> there we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, I mean. Can I yeah, tell you about yeah, the assessment? Yeah, I yeah about so I mean, we, we have the sprint type assessment in there where okay. you go through some questions to kind of work on yourself. Uh, we also have a second assessment that's mm -hmm. based on the neuroscience of what, what we call internal inclinations. Um, so there's three ways that entrepreneurs that are successful, their inclinations they naturally have. And the assessment helps you see if that comes natural for you. Is it an internal inclination? Does it just, is it there? Or is it something you need to develop? It's not a pass fail like, oh, you don't have this, you're, you shouldn't be an entrepreneur. It's just, right. let's be aware of our natural tendencies and our natural struggles. Mm -hmm. And then here's some tools to help you actually overcome them. So the first inclination is curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, the second one is an outsider perspective. Mm -hmm. And the third one is the ability to move on it. 
And so, I mean, let's take just curiosity. You know, I mean, as I do these chapters, I would say like, what are other kind of ancillary things? You know, what comes to mind just when I say curiosity? Well, curiosity killed the cat. Okay, so I'm like, where did that come from? This cat got stuck in a chimney in 19, I think it was 10. <laughs> uh, it was like Mrs. Mabel or something like that. Is this it was, came it, from really? Yeah, no, okay. yeah, no. It was national news, front page of the Washington Post. People were following whether they were going to get this cat out of the chimney. Uh, and a side note, do you know there's been no evidence, there's not a single case of people putting razor blades in apples on Halloween? Oh my, I don't doubt that. I mean, it never happened. Yeah. It's yeah. all old There's so many of those things. So this cat actually gets yeah. caught in the chimney, and the front page of the Washington Post says, Curiosity killed the cat. So, I mean, what does that teach us? Like, it teaches us that if you want to discover something, you're going to die. <laughs> like, like my kids, they're curious. I want them to be curious. Yeah. But we've been told curiosity killed the cat. Like, stay in line. Don't push the envelope. Mm -hmm. So people that don't do that, they're actually are curious and say, well, that's interesting. Why did that happen? Instead of a pass-fail mentality in their business or mm -hmm. they run a Facebook ad and it's a total failure. You know, instead of internalizing that, saying really crappy business person, it's okay, that's some data that yeah, I just that wasted a thousand dollars on this and maybe my audience isn't on Facebook, maybe I use bad copy, like who knows? So the second one, um, the outsider perspective was really an interesting one I didn't expect because you know, yeah. you kind of think, okay, everyone's doing things this way, if I fit in I'm gonna be successful. But they actually, the research actually supports that someone with an outsider perspective has more influence than statistically they should. Meaning that in a small group of people, mm -hmm. an outsider is able to push that group to think differently better than someone inside the group. So There was, there was a yeah. study done about um, somebody trying to have like some scientific breakthrough and all the doctors were stuck and the seal company brought in an actor to say, oh, he's coming in from Norway, he's a specialist, my God. And just his presence got their creativity up to, <laughs> to, to solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, so yeah. one of the studies I talk about in the book is a color study where they brought together small groups of six to eight people, uh, and they showed colors of either green or blue, different mm -hmm. shades of it. And, it. and some were really obvious, some were kind of close, and you know, they had the first group where everyone pretty much agreed. The second group, they had two people that were working with the researchers, and when there was one that was in the middle, specific ones that, you know, that's definitely green, they said, no, that, that's definitely blue. And they overwhelmingly would convince the others to say, oh no, maybe maybe I am colorblind or something. Like, they second-guessed themselves, and these outsiders just were able to influence statistically beyond what they should have been able to. So, so that ability to, whether you are an outsider or you need to develop it, putting yourself in unique situations where you can feel what it is to be an outsider, going to conferences that are totally outside of your domain. Right. The, the ability to layer things from different information sources is really important for to be a su successful entrepreneur. Yeah. Uh, and then the third one is the ability to move on it. Um, you know, I mean, you think about typical grad school or, you know, I mean, you have a smart audience. Um, you know, you write a paper, you go through it, you take it to the writing center, you turn it in, and then this professor gives you a grade. Like that, that's not how business works. Like we can adjust and change. Um, mm -hmm. So on one side we have accuracy, and on the other side we have speed. And so if I'm going under the knife, if I'm like getting surgery, I don't care how long it takes, like you better be accurate. Yeah. Like when you take out my thyroid when I had cancer, like, yeah, which I did. Um, it's like I wanted the best specialist, and if she needed 24 hours to do it, like, do a good job with that. So there are areas we need accuracy. But most of the work that we're in, speed is gonna trump accuracy every time. And so we, we probably need to be about 70% speed and 30% accurate. Yeah, depending on if it's choosing a nuclear bomber or, right. or something else, right? Yeah, that's interesting.
Wow, you're you're very interesting. I, I definitely want to get this book, of course. Now, um, speaking of that, um, most of, the, of my audience are self-publishing, and you're going. You you got to deal with Harper Collins. Can you yeah. tell us about that journey a little bit? Yeah, you know, I self-published. I think self-publishing is really great. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful way to kind of put yourself out there as an authority. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's easy to do now. It's uh, you know, you can have a writing coach or not. And I mean, it's just such a great way. And I, I did that when I first started my podcast to build authority mm -hmm. and SEO and all that. Yeah. Um, but every year I ask myself, you know, what's one thing that if I did this, that it would just open crazy doors. Mm -hmm. uh, the book, The One Thing was really influential in my life and yeah. got to know Jay Papazan. And so every year it's like, what's that thing? And so a couple of years ago it was, if I can have a traditionally published book, it's a New York Times bestseller, mm -hmm. uh, that will open a lot of doors. Yeah. Uh, and so, on my podcast, I just every author that I had that was traditionally published, I mm -hmm. said I'm shopping around for a new agent. Yeah. Um, I didn't have an agent. <laughs> I just said I'm shopping around for a new one because I don't have one. Uh, would would you do? Statement. Yeah. Would, would you introduce me? And within two weeks, I probably had 15 introductions nice. and was interviewing people. Um, landed my agent Greg, who then um, connected me with a writing coach, and for a year, every Thursday, we would just talk about my ideas, and she just got me word vomiting and she's like here's the themes I'm noticing here's your unique point of view and then we finally landed on that the four-day work week was really what I kept teaching people over and over but then it was well great people should work four days what do you do now like and so then we, we broke it down into the whole slowing down to speed up the actual blueprint for sprint types and internal inclinations uh, and you know she had the pulse of the industry industry she knew what people were buying and so working with that professional that said People like assessments. Like I wouldn't have thought to put assessments in my book, but then she's like, "You got to have an assessment in your book, or, or maybe even two. And then that's a good email opt-in too to go from the book to actually like work with me and connect with me. Um, so then uh, shopped it around in early 2020, and I remember saying to Harper Collins, "Sorry, I'm not going to fly to meet with you in person. I have type one diabetes, history of cancer. COVID was just taking off." And they're like, "Wait, you're you're not going to come meet with us?" I'm like, "No, I, I love that you want to have my book, but this COVID thing seems like it might take off." And yeah. at that time, they were like on the fence. We were supposed to meet in April of 2020, oh, gosh, yeah. and this was uh, like late February. And I'm just yeah. like, "I'm not going to fly." And um, it, it worked out well. I didn't have to fly to go meet with them. And um, and really, at the time, I didn't know if COVID was going to affect the yeah. book. And but really, by writing it during COVID. I could then put in, hey, we're going through a global experiment right now. Yep. Like, we don't know how it's going to shake out, Several but we experience. are saying <laughs> the world will not be the same. We are saying that work won't be the same, and here's how I'm processing that. So it's, it's very relevant with it coming out right after, you know, a worldwide pandemic. Hopefully after, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, who knows how many rounds so, we have. So you have the agent. Um, she shopped at HarperCollins, you, and the, uh, you told me a little bit earlier when we chatted about yeah, this. Yeah. Go ahead and tell people about, you can, if you want to reveal a number, good. If you don't, that's cool too. But tell me how that negotiation went. Yeah. Because most people like because we know the stats. I mean, they reject 99.9% of all yeah. manuscripts and they're talking to you yeah. and you've got an advance. Mm -hmm. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so, um, you know, the way it works is, you know, if, if you get a meeting with a HarperCollins, it's yeah. as much me making sure they're a fit as, as them making sure I'm a fit. It's not an interview to try to get me to just mm -hmm. join. It's us seeing if there's a good relationship there. And, mm -hmm. and the amount of kind of business books that they are putting out, for me, felt like a very solid fit. So, um, I tend to over-research things, and I had been listening to Never Split the Difference, a HarperCollins book um, that I would recommend for anyone that negotiates. Um, and you know, one technique from this HarperCollins book was to give a kind of non-zero number. So, like, if it if someone offers you five thousand or ten thousand or hundred k, whatever it is, when you come back with your number that you want. 
just take a few digits off, add a few digits, add some decimal points, mm -hmm. you know, so it's like pennies. So I pretty much just dumped, doubled their offer and then made it look funny. So it was very precise. Um, and then they accepted it. Um, they assumed just like Never Split the Difference said that I had done some sort of yeah. crazy research mm -hmm. when really I just doubled it. And then months afterwards, my editor said to me, I, the whole team has just been wondering, how did you get that number? I'm just like, I read your book, Never Split the Difference. And he just said, whatever you want for your number to be, just change it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And he just laughed at me. <laughs> Amazing. That's great. And then also very interesting what you did with that. They gave you an advance of some, yeah. some amount. Yeah. And then tell, tell people what you did with it. Yeah. So I told them from the beginning that I wasn't going to keep any of it. Like my business is going fine. You know, sure, I'd like to have the money. But to me, I'm using somebody else's money to promote myself. And so I said, I'm going to put 100% of this back into marketing. Hired a PR firm. Hired interview valet to get me on a bunch of podcasts. Um, have my own assistants that are doing a ton of work too. And just mm -hmm. said all of this money. I even had a separate bank account. So every single time I could just pull it out and know this is all going for marketing the book. Um, and, and I think they probably gave a bigger advance as well because they knew, hey, we already have a marketing budget. Like we can put that marketing budget into Joe's advance and he's just gonna use it how he wants to. Uh, and so I mean, I, I learned that from Angie Morgan who wrote Spark. She's a New York Times bestseller and a friend of mine. And you know, she had done the same thing where she just said, this is the advance I want, but I'm gonna spend it all. And she got it. Yeah, nice. Um, are, you, are you comfortable sharing like what your amount or marketing plan is for your book or anything is that yeah so uh with with the advance and then uh with the marketing plan um you know we're doing about six figures in in marketing uh i'd say about 40 percent of that is one particular marketing firm that um has been able to get me into harvard business review um cnbc is going to be doing a three-part series um forbes and inc both did q a's with me i mean just like every week like it starts to sound kind of pompous at this point whereas there's so much stuff that they stack up it's no it's, it's not insane pompous. it's important <laughs> yeah I mean, the whole media junket thing is, is oh. vital to getting stuff out yeah. there. And the, the, the challenge with books is you can't do it over a long period of time. You got right. to compress this yeah. thing because it's they have all the lifespan. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, even just being able to connect with like John Lee Dumas for EO Fire or Pat Flynn with Smart Passive Income and the One Thing Podcast and kind of pull out all the stops with the people that I've helped along the way and say, listen, like, I want to be on your show again. I want to come talk about the book. And can you release it during publish week so that just it's all over the place in early October? Um, and keeping track of all that. And so figuring out a system where my assistant, Jess, my director of details, anytime I do something like this, like you saw me do it, I, I texted the picture of your card. I said, you know, we're doing this interview. Make sure it goes up on the media page. So then it's not just, you know, the New York Times stuff. It's going to be, you know, your show is on there too. And how great for the people that have helped me to then have all these backlinks and be on the same page and say look like I was a part of this yeah. and, and so I think just finding marketing is important but finding those relationships and keeping track of those relationships is where you know if I have a second book it's easy I can go back to that system and say hey look at all these people yeah. and um, so figure out that workflow so that I'm not the one that's doing these little tasks that I'm only doing. Yeah, you can. I can't send my director of details to come do this interview, like, right. but I can have her do everything after this interview with yeah. follow up and all of that too. Yeah, that's a really important point for uh, the authors watching this. You've got to invest time, but also be organized and invest yeah. resources, of course. Um, any um, any final parting words to uh, future readers of the book or people who should read it? No, I mean I think that. To me, this is the start of the conversation. There are lots of people talking about the four-day work week, and I am not worried about me not being the one person. I think it's in our generation, we're gonna see this happen. And people right now can either be leaders and saying, how are we gonna do this for the betterment of humanity? Uh, I mean, 
Iceland just did a 2,500 person study over four years on the four day work week. And they found that people were happier, they were healthier, they were just as productive. Um, and so it's right now it's really sweeping Europe in a huge conversation in a number of countries, you know, New Zealand, Spain, Iceland. Um, it's only a matter of time before we realize what we're doing to ourselves and how we're, we're sicker than we need to be, we're more unhappy than we need to be, that you know, getting that extra little bit of money statistically actually won't make you that happy. Um, yeah, yeah. so I mean, I would just say join the conversation. Uh, we have lots of resources over at joesanok.com where people are saying what kind of events they're doing or different th ways that they're enacting and experimenting with the book. Um, and to me, it's like, let's do this as a community and say, yeah. how do we all make Thursday the new Friday? Right. It's not just my thing. This is this is our, this is our schedule. Right. Yeah, Henry Ford Friday. invented it. We can undo all this. Yeah, there you go. Hold the book up a second. Yeah. Show people what that cover looks like. So they recognize, right. there we go. Joe Sanek, Thursday is a new Friday and it should be for all, all people. Very good. Thank you so much. Awesome. Appreciate your time. Thank you. This has been great. You bet. Amazing.